We're going to hit the pause button in our studies in the book of Acts, at least for a brief while, maybe longer. Uh, and in that pause this evening, I'd like to invite you to turn to, with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms and to the longest of those Psalms, indeed to the longest of all the chapters in the Bible, namely Psalm 119. Turn with me to Psalm 119. It is, as I said, a lengthy psalm, 176 verses in all, so we're not going to read it in its entirety this evening, but rather I'd just like to zero in on a handful of verses beginning there in verse 9 and reading down through verse 16. So read with me Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you, Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Father, we simply want to say now with the psalmist, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Teach us your statutes tonight, Lord. Teach us your word, your precepts, so that we will, each one of us, leave this evening saying also with the psalmist, I shall delight in your statutes I shall not forget your word. Help us. Speak to us. Use this psalm and this psalmist. We pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119 is quite an interesting piece of literature. Not only because it's 176 verses, as I said, make it the longest chapter in the Bible, but also because of the way in which those verses are organized. You may have noticed in prior readings of Psalm 119, or perhaps even as you turn to it tonight, that before every eighth verse, there is a heading. So, for instance, the word Aleph is written in as the heading for verses 1 through 8, and the word Bait precedes verses 9 through 16, and the word Gimel introduces verses 17 through 24, and so on. All told, there are 22 such headings with eight verses beneath each one, giving us 176 verses in all. And those 22 headings are, in order, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, spelled out in Latin characters, of course, so that we can pronounce them in English. But those 22 headings are the equivalent of the characters of the Hebrew alphabet, in order. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and so on. And you might ask, why would the characters of the Hebrew alphabet be placed as headings throughout this psalm? Well, because the eight verses that follow each successing letter of the Hebrew alphabet all start with that very letter. Does that make sense? So each of the first eight verses in Psalm 119 under the heading Aleph Each of those verses under that heading all begin with that very letter, Aleph. And then each of the verses 9 through 16 begin with the Hebrew letter 
bait that heads that section. And all eight of the verses from 17 through 24 begin with the letter Gimel and so on through all 22 stanzas of the psalm. So you take each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and write eight poetic verses, each of which begins with that letter, and then you stack all 22 of those eight-verse stanzas together, and you have Psalm 119. And what you have actually is a literary masterpiece in your hands tonight. You try to write eight poetic, thoughtful sentences that teach spiritual truth and begin each one of them with the letter A. Not so easy to do, let alone to repeat that process through every letter of the alphabet and come up with something at the end that's still being read centuries and centuries later. This psalmist, whomever he was, and he doesn't name himself, this psalmist displays incredible literary powers in the composition of this psalm. Now, we understand, of course, that the Holy Spirit guided and inspired him and ensured that he wrote down exactly what God would have him write, and I don't want to diminish that at all, but the Holy Spirit moved these men in the Bible to write through their own personalities and gifting, which is why Paul's writing, for instance, is quite different from John's writing. The scriptures were given to us, 2 Peter 1, by men moved by the Holy Spirit but they were still men who brought their own God-given personalities and talents to the table when they penned the sacred writings. And so, yes, the Spirit moved upon the psalmist to write these words, but the psalmist also had a literary gift, and he used it in an incredible way. He had an incredible power with words. And yet, As we look tonight beyond just the literary form of the psalm and actually begin to notice its content, what we find is that this man who had such a way with words was much more impressed with God's words than he was with his own. That is what this psalm is really all about. This psalm is a long meditation on the goodness of God's word. It is an expression all throughout of the psalmist's love for God's word of his delight in and his trust in God's word, of his commitment to learn it and to obey it and to remember it and so on. Psalm 119 is a psalm about the word of God. In fact, we see that reflected very clearly in the brief portion that we just read there in verses 9 through 16. Every one of those eight verses makes direct reference to the word of God. Notice it with me. Your word, verse 9, Your commandments, verse 10. Your word, verse 11. Your statutes, verse 12. The ordinances of your mouth, verse 13. Your testimonies, verse 14. Your precepts, verse 15. Your statutes and your word, verse 16. Every verse makes direct mention of God's word. And that's not only true in these eight verses, but it's true in nearly every one of the 176 verses of this psalm. I counted today, and if my calculations are correct, I found only 10 verses out of 176 that do not contain a direct reference to God's word, his law, his statutes, his testimonies, his precepts, his commandments, and so on. Only 10. If I counted correctly, 166 out of these 176 verses speak 
directly about God's word. So if you ever wanted to come to better appreciate God's word, if you ever wanted to learn at the feet of someone who does appreciate God's word, Psalm 119 is the place to turn, and this psalmist's feet are the place to sit. This is a man who loves the word of God, and we ought, each of us, to want to be like him. We ought to learn from his passion for the word of God, and I want us to do that this evening. I want us just to zoom the camera lens in on what we might think of as part B of this psalm, verses 9 through 16, and just learn from the psalmist's example in these few verses from his love for God's word in these few verses. He, wrote, he loved it enough, of course, to write this incredibly arduous 176-verse poem about it. But even in this brief snapshot this evening, we see his love for the word of God welling up in his words about it. And I just want to notice six things from the example of the psalmist in verses 9 through 16. I'm going to put them into six imperatives for us to live by. Based on his example that we'll observe, here are six imperatives for how we ought to take action with the word of God as we learn from the psalmist's example. But before we get to those six, let me just pause and say that each of these six imperatives, each of these six actions that the psalmist's example encourages us to take, each of them assumes that you and I are actually reading God's word ourselves that we're listening to it, that we're hearing it taught, and so on. Now, you're all here on a Wednesday night, right, listening to God's Word, so you may not need this reminder as much as some folks might, but it's still worth saying that if you are here tonight and you're not reading your Bible regularly, or you're not availing yourself fully of the opportunities to hear it read and taught in this building, that's where you have to start. Because it will be much more difficult for you to follow the rest of the psalmist's example if you're not, first of all, taking in God's word as your regular spiritual food. You imagine a teenage girl who is worried about her looks and her weight, and so she's not eating. You can talk to her about proteins and carbs and lipids and all these things that have to do with dietary and nutritional stuff. But if she's just struggling to eat in the first place, that's probably where you want to start, right? Just get her to eat, and then you can begin to build upon that basic habit. And that's what some of us may need to do. Regular reading and hearing of God's word is, for the Christian, that basic, that important, just as eating is for our bodies. Man shall not live on bread alone, Jesus said but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so some of us may need to just go back to that one simple basic. In fact, if that's all this sermon accomplishes tonight, to spur someone who has been neglecting their spiritual food to begin eating again, then it will have been worth our time. But there is, of course, much more here in Psalm 119. As we look at the psalmist's example, as we look at the way he deals with the word of God, We who are in God's word can greatly benefit from what we draw here and greatly increase the benefit we draw when we read our Bibles on our own and greatly benefit and increase the glory that God gets from our lives if we will imitate this psalmist's attitude towards the things that he read and heard in this book. So let me... Finally, after all his introductory thoughts, take you to these verses 9 through 16 and give you six imperatives based on the psalmist's example 
concerning the Word of God. Number one, we must obey God's Word. We must obey God's Word. That is the psalmist's heartbeat there in verse 9, is it not? He is concerned not just with biblical head knowledge, which is important, but he's also concerned with purity. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can he? By keeping it according to your word. By keeping it according to your word. Now, that's not only true, of course, for young men, but for all people, right? How can any of us keep our way pure? By keeping it according to God's word. And the simple word for that is obedience, right? That's what we mean when we keep our way according to God's word, obedience. And that's what the psalmist wants for young men. And perhaps he himself was a young man when he wrote this psalm. We're not sure. But even if not, it's clear in verse 11 that the psalmist wants to cultivate obedience in himself as well because he says there, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Did you hear the same emphasis in verse 11? The psalmist wants in his own heart to promote purity, to ward off sin. And that is accomplished, he says, by treasuring God's word in the heart, which we'll come back to in a few moments. And it is accomplished by keeping our way according to it. By obedience, in other words. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Obedience. How easy is it? I hope it's easy for you to turn to God's word sometimes because it comforts me and my difficulties. Because it provides grounding for me when I'm unsteady or uncertain. Because it rescues me when I've stumbled into sin and marvelously reminds me again and again and again of my Savior. I should turn to God's word for all those reasons, right? But let me not forget that I should also turn to it that I may not sin against God, that I might keep my way pure by keeping it according to his word, that I may, might, in a word, obey. That's why I should go to the Psalms. That's why I should go to the scriptures in general, that I might obey. This is a running theme in Psalm 119, in fact. Obedience, observing God's law, keeping his precepts, his commandments, and so on. Is that a running theme in your life, though? Does your life mirror the concerns of this psalm? Or are there areas in your life in which perhaps you know tonight that you are not keeping your way according to God's law? Areas in your life where you know that you're living contrary to God's commandments and in unrepentant sin. Is there anything like that in your life tonight? It's one thing to listen to God's word. That's important, vital. But it is something else to listen and, verse 9, to keep your way according to it. Let's make sure that we do both. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. We must obey the word of God. But then in the second place, the psalmist's example here urges us to pray over God's word. To pray over his word. Now this whole psalm is, of course, you may have noticed, a prayer. The whole thing is the psalmist's communication to God of his thoughts and intentions concerning God's word. 
But this second stanza tonight gives us two places specifically in which the psalmist prays precisely about his relationship to God's word. The whole psalm is a prayer about God's word, but there are two places here where he says specifically, God, I need your help concerning your word. The first of them is in verse 10. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Isn't that interesting? He's already voiced his concern for obedience in verse 9, and he's going to voice his commitment to obedience in verse 11. But in between those two verses, he utters a prayer for God's help in the matter of obedience as well. Do not let me wander from your commandments. So we mustn't simply read God's word, looking for commands to obey, and then trying with all of our might to keep our ways pure. We must read God's word and commit to keep his commandments and look for them and make great effort to keep them. But also we must pray that God would please come and help us. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Do you ever pray like that as you're reading along through the Bible? You come across a command or maybe a principle of obedience and perhaps you're convinced that you must begin to do it or you must begin to do it again. Or you're ashamed that you haven't been doing it or you want to do it better. And so you commit that you must begin to do it. And that's good. But do you pause and, and lay those thoughts on the table before the Lord and admit how badly you're going to need his help to do it? Do not let me wander from your commandments. I've seen your commandments. I understand what you want. I'm committing to you to do them. Now help me, please. We ought to pray over God's word in this way. And we also ought to pray over God's word like the psalmist does in verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. Do you pray like that when you open your Bible each day, when you sit down in these pews on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night? Teach me your statutes. This is another area for me, much like praying for the persecuted church, that's often easier to preach about than it is to actually do. But I ought not to just assume that when I open the Bible, I will understand what I read, or that when I sit in the pew, I will understand what someone is preaching. I ought to pray that the Holy Spirit will come and open my mind and be my teacher. I ought to pray, teach me your statutes. The psalmist puts this same sort of prayer request even more elegantly down in the next stanza in verse 18, where he says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And that could be a great prayer for you to hide away in your heart and pull out when you open this book. To say to the Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. How often God does that for us. Many times even when we don't pray as we should. But let's learn to ask him. Let's learn to pray over God's word as the psalmist does here. And then in the third place, let us also, as I was just alluding to, hide God's word in our hearts. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin 
against you. Some of you may be familiar with the King James rendering of this verse. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Or you may have the English Standard Version on your lap this evening, which reads at verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And again, the New American Standard Bible from which I'm reading says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Three different words are used there in those three different translations. Treasured, hid, stored. And as I think about those three words, a a picture comes to my mind. I'm picturing the psalmist's heart like a treasure chest, or maybe like a safe in modern terminology, in which he is storing up and hiding away precious valuables to be brought out in his time of need. Only in this case, the valuables are not pieces of gold bullion or stacks of greenbacks kept in an emergency fund. The valuables that he's storing up, that he's treasuring, that he's hiding away in the safe of his heart are the very words of God. He's storing away God's word. He's saving it up in his heart for the same reason perhaps that people store up money or earthly treasures so that when he finds himself in a position of need, he will have something solid on which to lean. And the specific need that he seems to have in mind here in verse 11 is the hour of temptation. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So the psalmist is storing God's word in his heart. He's hiding it away. He is amassing it like treasure so that he will have truth to cling to when he is faced with the lies of temptation. He wants God's word stockpiled in his heart that he may not sin against God when he's tempted. And you'll remember that this is exactly how our Lord Jesus himself survived Satan's temptations in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. He had stored up God's word in his heart and he was able to use it, the sword of the spirit, to parry each of Satan's temptations. Praise God that he did. It was his perfect overcoming of all temptation that made him an unblemished sacrifice fit to lay down his life in the place of us sinners, right? And one reason he was able to do it was because he did what the psalmist says that he did. He treasured God's word in his heart so that he would not sin against the Lord. Don't you want to live like that? Don't you want to be like the psalmist and more than that, like Jesus? I know there isn't as much riding on your or my overcoming of sin and temptation as there was on Jesus. But don't you want to obey As we talked about in verse 9, don't you want to keep your way according to God's word? If so, you will do well to hide that word away in your heart. You'll do well to memorize parts of it so that you'll have something to lean on during those pressure moments. I'm incredibly dependent in my understanding of, of verse 11 and really this whole idea of why it's so important to have the scripture stored up in our hearts to pull out in time of need. I'm incredibly dependent for these ideas on a biographical message that I listened to by John Piper on the life of John Bunyan. And in that message, 
One of the things Piper points out is that you're not always going to have your Bible readily available to open up and read in times of difficulty. And I would add that you won't always have your parents either or your spouse or your pastor or accountability partner right there with you in the moment of temptation to remind you of what is right and what is true. And so you must, as the psalmist did and as Piper points out, you must have the word of God treasured, stored up in your heart to pull out in your battle against temptation and sin. There are other times which the psalmist does not mention here when having scripture stored up and memorized can also be a tremendous blessing. One example Piper gives in that biography on Bunyan is when you're laying in the hospital bed. You can picture that, right? You're in the dark, you're alone, you're waiting for morning to come. Perhaps you're too disoriented to read, even if you do have a Bible at your side or a Gideon's Bible in the desk next to you. You can't read the Bible yourself, but you need to hear from God. And you can if you have verses of comfort and promise stored up in your heart. Or maybe you're sitting at a restaurant or standing in the checkout line at the grocery or next to someone at the ball game, and an opportunity presents itself for you to speak to them of Jesus, to share about his sinless life, to give them the good news of his death for sinners, to proclaim his resurrection and his victory over the grave. And you can do all of those things in your own words, or even more powerfully, you can support your own words with the very words of this book. But your Bible is on the bedside at home. So what do you do? Well, one thing you might do, as Dr. Gray Allison used to tell us in our personal evangelism class at seminary, is always carry a pocket testament with you. But the other thing Dr. Allison had us do in that class was to memorize lots of scripture so that we'd have it ready when those moments of evangelism came. So there are, there are multiple reasons to memorize scripture, to hide or treasure, or store it up in our hearts. The psalmist mentions specifically, again, your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And there are other reasons why we should store it up, why we should treasure it as well. I wanted to give you some practical tips for doing this, for hiding God's word in your heart. You can ask me afterwards if you're interested, but time dictates that we press on. But however we do this, Practically, let us do it. Let us learn from the psalmist's example. Let us hide God's word in our hearts by memory. Obey God's word, pray over God's word, hide God's word in your heart. And then a fourth way in which we should learn from the psalmist's example is to speak God's word. Verse 13, with my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. Speak God's word. Now this psalmist is as we've said already, a unique individual. He has a tremendous gift for writing. He's been set aside by the Holy Spirit to be one of the authors of Scripture, and it could also be that he was a leader of some sort in Israel. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that he had a unique opportunity and a unique responsibility to do what he says he has done there in verse 13, to speak God's words to other people. But it seems to me that though he may have had a unique opportunity and responsibility to speak God's word, we can all still learn from his example in this regard. 
Because while you may not have a unique opportunity or a unique responsibility to share God's word, to tell of all the ordinances of his mouth, you do have an opportunity and a responsibility. Do you not? God has given each one of us spheres of influence into which we ought to be speaking God's word. There are, of course, those evangelistic opportunities that we spoke about just in the last heading, and we should take courage and make the most of them. But there are other opportunities as well in which we have an opportunity, a responsibility to speak God's word. If you're a parent, you should be able to say concerning your ministry to your children, at least in some measure, what the psalmist says here in verse 13. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I don't think that means you have to read to them every single verse of the Bible. But in 18 years in your home, your children should be getting the whole picture of biblical truth. And then some of us, God is called to be teachers of his word. We teach children, we teach other adults, we teach teenagers perhaps, and we must speak, we must tell of all the ordinances of God's mouth. We can also tell the ordinances of God's mouth by, meaning, by, by means of letters and cards of encouragement to other believers, by means of accountability to other believers at the hospital bedside for that person who's disoriented or tired and can't read the scriptures to him or herself. There are all sorts of ways. Maybe we don't have all the psalmist's gifts or opportunities, but we can all say in some measure, with my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. And then we ought not only to speak God's word like the psalmist, but also to rejoice in God's word like the psalmist. Look at verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Reading, treasuring, keeping God's word was for the psalmist not just a discipline, but a delight. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Don't you want that to be true of you? Don't you want to be able to say with the psalmist what he says over in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Ask the Lord to make that so for you. And then you do your level best to develop a taste for the word. What is today perhaps primarily a discipline for you, I should read God's word, can become a delight. I love God's word. If you will pray and if you will continue reading and develop a taste. But I want you to see that the main thing this psalmist seems to be saying here is that he rejoices not just in reading God's word, but that he rejoices in the very sorts of commands that God's word gives Notice, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Or verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall delight in your statutes. Isn't that something? Far from feeling cramped by God's statutes, God's laws, God's commandments, the psalmist says, I like them. I shall delight in your statutes. And if we will take God's statute seriously, I think we'll say the same thing. I think we'll say, I'm thankful for the boundaries God has placed in my life. 
I'm thankful that he hasn't left me to myself. I'm thankful that he's given me rules to live by. Far from constricting me, they're actually for my great benefit. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. The Apostle John in the New Testament speaks in a similar vein in his first epistle. He says this, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. And the psalmist is saying the same thing here, only from a positive direction. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. I shall delight in your statutes. This is perhaps easy to say in a sermon that God's commandments are not burdensome, that we should delight in them, that we should rejoice in them. But it's not so easy always to respond that way in practice. Because frankly... The world and the flesh and the devil would all like us to believe that God's commandments are burdensome. And that's sometimes why we kick against them when they come to us. I'll give you an example. This coming Sunday, Lord willing, I'm going to be preaching to you from Isaiah 58 about the Sabbath day. You remember the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now that is a really good thing. It's a perfect example of how his commandments are not burdensome. God has given us a whole day every week free of work, free of having to have others work for you, free of unnecessary distractions, Isaiah 58, free to rest, free to worship God, free to fellowship with the saints. And he tells us in Isaiah 58 that if we will keep that day holy, he will make us ride on the heights of the earth. And yet this Sunday, some of us are going to have to really fight the world and the flesh and the devil who are going to be whispering in our ear that this is so restrictive. And doesn't he realize that this is the 21st century? Nothing stops on Sunday anymore. And don't you understand that I already have plans this afternoon. And you're preaching this the week before the NFL kicks off. What in the world? And before we even realize what is happening, we may have convinced ourselves that the fourth commandment is burdensome. Or that it no longer applies to New Testament people. And we're prone to do this with all sorts of God's commandments that do not seem immediately to fit with the ways in which we've already organized our lives. But not so the psalmist. When God gives him a statute, he not only desires to keep it, verse 9, but he delights in it, verse 16. He rejoices in it, verse 14. He sees it as God's gift. And we should challenge ourselves to do the same. Even when God's laws do seem initially restrictive, even when they force us to say no to our flesh, that we would delight in them, that we would rejoice in the way of his testimonies. And then finally, the psalmist example reminds us that we will do well to meditate on God's word also. I will, verse 15, meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Meditate on God's word. There's reading of God's word and hearing of God's word, which is the starting place for all these other things. 
There's memorizing God's word, storing it away that we can use it later. But then there's also ruminating on God's word, mulling it over in our minds again and again, thinking deeply about it, maybe writing down some notes. And these are the sorts of things I think that the psalmist has in mind when he says, I will meditate on your precepts. Do you do that? Meditate? Sometimes I just read my Bible, and maybe so do you, merely so that I can check it off my daily list. Okay, I had my quiet time today. God will be happy with me. But do I actually stop and think about what I'm reading? Really consider it. Really reflect thoughtfully about what it means and how it applies to my life. Do I say when I open my Bible in the morning, I need to read this next chapter today? Or do I say with the psalmist, I will meditate on your precepts? I think the latter is much better than the former. It's good to have a daily reading plan and to stick with it and to say I need to keep up, but it's even better if I'm not in such a hurry merely to tick today's checkbox that I actually have time to think about, meditate on what I'm reading. How do I do that? Let me just give you three practical suggestions before we draw things to a close. How do I meditate? First of all, make time. Make time. Give yourself enough time, not simply to get through the reading and say a brief prayer, but give yourself enough time to spend some minutes thinking and praying through what you read. This may mean doing your quiet time at a different time of the day. It may mean getting up a little bit earlier. It may mean making some other sorts of adjustments so that you will have time to say, I will meditate on your precepts. Let me also say this is another reason why the commandment about the Sabbath is not burdensome. God has given you a whole day free so that you'll have time to do things like meditate on his precepts. Make time. Secondly, shut down distractions. And I use the word shut down intentionally because many of the greatest enemies to a Psalm 119.15 kind of life come with power cords hanging out the backs of them. Many of us would be surprised, perhaps, if Big Brother could tell us how much time we actually spend each week on the television and computers and smartphones and video games. In fact, frightening to say, Big Brother may soon be able to tell us if he doesn't know already. But I don't think we'd want to know. Because many of us already know that we simply spend far too much time on those things. Which means that we need to learn to close the lid and put away the phone and put down the remote and shut off the TV and give ourselves undivided attention that will allow us to say, I will meditate on your precepts. So make time, shut down distractions, and then thirdly, don't bite off more than you can chew. I've been a proponent at times of trying to read through the whole Bible in a year, and I still am a proponent of that if one can do it without sacrificing Psalm 119 verse 15. But For some of us, maybe three and four chapters a day is a little bit aggressive. Maybe we would do well, some of us, just to read one chapter or even just a paragraph and really stew over it carefully, really pray over it thoughtfully. So think that out. If I'm going to really chew on God's word, how much can I really handle without biting off more 
than I can actually chew. How much is enough to allow me to say each morning or evening, not just I will read your precepts, but I will meditate on your precepts. So then, just six practical pieces of advice tonight. Actually, seven, because I gave you one off the top, didn't I? Read the word, or listen to it, hear it, obey the word, pray over the word, hide the word in your heart, speak the word, rejoice in the word, meditate on the word. And if you do these things, you'll be able to say with the psalmist in verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. You'll be able to say with him in verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And you'll be able to say with him, verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches.